0: Who says the Bible has to be boring? On the contrary, the Bible is the most thrilling book in the world. It's the only book with an invitation to join the very narrative you are reading. My goal is to be like your time traveling tour guide, taking you into an exploration of Scripture in search of precious treasure, timeless, life giving truths that inform us of who God is, who we are and how the story of everything really is his story. I invite you to join me as we learn to read the story, trust the story, and live the story, because there's no greater adventure than knowing the God of the Bible. I'm Brayden Brookshire, and this is Adventures in Theology. Habakkuk. Habakkuk. However you want to say it. (laughs) And well-informed scholars have said it many ways, Habakkuk, Habakkuk, I might even oscillate between how I say it. But that is the book of focus for today. It's three short chapters. We're not going to go everything verse by verse, but if you have read this before, you know what I'm talking about. Man, if you can sift through the poetry and the very big cultural difference, there's a great message in here for us. And if you haven't read Habakkuk, Habakkuk. I encourage you to read it on your own and take from this as a really good overview um, as it as well. So if you have ever struggled to trust and understand what God is doing in the world, you need Habakkuk. And some people have, well, rightly compared Habakkuk to the book of Job. There's some similarities between it, but I think there's also a big difference. If you're reading Job, the ultimate kind of question that Job is asking is, well, not Job, but the reader is probably asking is, why do bad things happen to good people? That's more of the answer that Job is providing, even though it never really answers that. So that's always interesting. That's a talk for another time. Habakkuk, though, is different. Habakkuk is more so the question is, why does evil prevail unchecked? Basically, if, the, if there's a god and he's a good God, and he's powerful, and all this, then what the heck? Why are things going as they are going? And so that is kind of the plight. And so uh, let's just read the first four verses of Habakkuk chapter one, and get kind of into it. So we won't go through everything, but this should give us a good start here. Habakkuk, Habakkuk chapter one, verses one through four. The pronouncement that The prophet Habakkuk saw how long, Lord, must I call for help? And you do not listen or cry out to you about violence and you do not save. Why do you force me to look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Oppression and violence are right in front of me. Strife is ongoing and conflict escalates. That is why the law is ineffective and justice never emerges. For the wicked restrict the righteous, therefore justice comes out perverted. That is the first four verses of Habakkuk. And now a few things going uh, here about Habakkuk. We don't know too much about this person, uh, this prophet, but obviously unique about him as a prophet is usually prophets are hearing a message from God and taking it to the people. This is kind of the reverse of that. Uh, but instead of him representing Israel, Judah, in more of a mass kind of way, he's representing the more of the faithful few who are still following Yahweh uh, amongst the really crazy times that they live in. And he's speaking on their behalf. And uh, as one of my friends actually put it, I really like this, he's speaking on the behalf of justice itself. He's calling on God's character uh, to do what God usually does. Like, God, you're the just God, so why is injustice prevailing? And to give you some cultural backdrop about what's going on here, uh, his first complaint in these first four verses aren't about other nations. He's complaining about Israel itself. At this part of the story, uh, if you're not familiar with too much of the Old Testament timeline, this is after what we call the monarchy into the divided kingdom. Israel and Judah are no longer well one kingdom. It's two separate kingdoms. The kings are usually evil and wicked, they're not good like David was, Uh, they're not following God, Um, most of the time actually they're worshipping other idols and false gods, and they're even doing terrible things like sacrificing their children to some of these idols, uh, which was part of the reason why they were driving out the nations from the land in the first place back in the book of Joshua. Go listen to that series if you haven't. So they've become the very evil that they were supposed to expel from the land. That that's where Habakkuk is living in this time, and it's prior to them going into exile and captivity in Babylon. Uh, some scholars estimate that will be about 80 years after Habakkuk's life. But point is, Habakkuk is complaining because he's seen the leadership of Israel, and he's saying. God, this doesn't make sense. We're supposed to be the people who are the light to the nations. We're supposed to be the people who represent goodness and your wisdom and how to walk in your ways. And look at these leaders. Look at the injustice that's prevailing from within. And it's almost like God doesn't hear. You know, at this point, we don't know if Habakkuk has ever had a true encounter with God. We don't know if, as a prophet, he's ever had a uh, word from the Lord or if this is going to be his first, you know, and maybe even only. But, uh, you know, I think for us, circumstances may not be parallel to Habakkuk's. Well, of course they're not. But we probably have prayed prayers where we're like, Lord, we, we call out to you and you don't even listen. You know, there are things in the Bible, and this is a good example in the first four verses of Habakkuk, where there are things recorded in the Bible about God that are actually not true of God. And I know that sounds really weird because you're like, the whole Bible is true. Well, yeah, but, uh, you know, it's kind of like you're reading this and he is making a declarative statement. You do not listen in verse two, talking about God. You do not listen. Well, that's not true of God. Theologically, God Does Listen, but what we're seeing here is how Habakkuk is perceiving or feeling and he's expressing that. And in a weird way, how cool is that that we can like look at a prophet and look at how they talk to God in this way. And know that we can come to God, honestly. And not that we do this uh, irreverentially. Oh my gosh, is that even a word? Or disrespectfully uh, or any sort like that. It's not that we're coming to God, mocking God, ridiculing God, uh, anything like that. But like I believe that Habakkuk's attitude was still coming to God with like faith, with trust, leaning into God, but man, was he leaning in authentically. And I think that's <clears throat> how we should all be. I mean, I think we should come to God authentically with how we're feeling about the circumstances that we're seeing in the world, in our lives, and so on, God, in a a sense, invites that. At least in this uh, short book, I don't see God ever correct Habakkuk for the way that he speaks, but I think that if we come to God like this, we need to know that uh, we're allowed to come and express and vent our feelings, but our feelings are not always the right indicator of what's actually true about God. And that's what we'll find out here. But yeah, the first four verses, um, (laughs) kind of some bold words by Habakkuk, but let's see God's first reply in verses five through 11. And uh, yeah, this starts to get very interesting. So God actually answers and he says this, look at the nations and observe, be utterly astounded for I'm doing something in your days that you will not believe when you hear about it. Look, I'm raising up the Babylonians, that bitter, bitter, Impetus notion, nation that marches across the earth's open spaces to seize territories not its own. They are fierce and terrifying. Their views of justice and sovereignty stem from themselves. Uh, their horses are swifter than leopards and more fierce than wolves of the night. Their horsemen charge ahead. Their horsemen come from distant lands. They, they fly like eagles swooping to devour All of them come to do violence. Their faces are set in determination. They gather prisoners like sand. They mock kings and rulers are a joke to them. They laugh at every fortress and build siege ramps to capture it. Then they sweep by like the wind and pass through. They are guilty. Their strength is their God. End of closed word of God. And clearly implied in here is that, like, you know, God sets us up in verse 5 saying, hey, like, Habakkuk, I'm doing something so uh, much bigger than something you understand. So what was Habakkuk's first complaint? God, injustice is prevailing from Israel. We are not living as the nation we're supposed to live, which is a helpful side reminder. Uh, you Back then in the Old Testament, you could have been part of ethnic Israel and not been part of spiritual Israel. Just because you were a Jew by your race and ethnic origin did not mean you were a Jew, as in your faith and your heart, actually believed and trusted in Yahweh. And same is true today. Someone could be ethnically Jewish, but that doesn't mean... Yeah, so it's it's one of those things, like we don't really have much comparison for this because it's not like Christianity is also an ethnicity. But if it was, it'd be easy to confuse it. Same here. I mean, Israel as a nation was still a nation at this point, um, but they not all people were actually being faithful to what, the religion, if you will, or the faith of Judaism was supposed to be at this point, to trust in Yahweh, to be the light to the world, to reach the world. They weren't doing that. And so God responds and says, Habakkuk, no, I I do listen. You said I don't listen. I do listen. But guess what? Not only am I listening, but I've been planning things. And I'll give you a little bit of insight into what I'm planning. Uh, You know that nation Babylon? (laughs) In Habakkuk's mind, he's like, Babylon? Out of all nations to raise up uh, yeah, and we're going to see Habakkuk what he says that in no a moment, but what God is saying is I'm going to raise them up and then he describes them how fierce and terrifying they are, and they are they are a terrible wicked, awful people, but God is raising them up for a purpose here and then so Habakkuk, let's keep reading for a moment, responds, and verse twelve we'll read through verse seventeen um and actually through uh, chapter two, verse one. And Habakkuk responds, and he says, Are you not from eternity, Lord my God, my Holy One? You will not die. Lord, you appointed them to execute judgment. My rock, you destined them to punish us. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil, and you cannot tolerate wrongdoing. So why do you tolerate those who are treacherous? Why are you silent, while one who is wicked swallows up one who is more righteous than himself? You've made mankind like the fish of the sea, like marine creatures that have no ruler. The Chaldeans put them, uh, the Babylonians, pull them up with a hook, catch them in their dragnet, and gather them in their fishing net. That's why they're glad and rejoice. That's why they sacrifice their dragnet and burn incense to their fishing net. Uh, by these things, their portion is rich and their food plentiful. Will, will, will they therefore empty their net and continually slaughter nations without mercy? <laughs> Oh man! And then chapter two, verse one: I will stand at my guard post and station myself at the lookout tower. I will watch to see what he, God, will say to me and what I should reply um, about my complaint. And that begins chapter two, which I think is an unfortunate heading. I think chapter two should begin with God's second answer, but it ends there. But do do we see what's going on here? I mean, first. Habakkuk, at the beginning of this book, had a valid complaint. Hey, injustice is prevailing within kind of like the people of God, if you will. And God, like, are you hearing? Do you do anything about it? And then God responds, oh, yeah, I hear that. I see that. Yeah, they are being wicked. And guess what? I've been scheming something for a while. Uh, I'm raising up the Babylonians. And now Habakkuk responds and is like, wait, those people are worse than us. Why use the more wicked to chastise the wicked or even probably a better way of thinking about it. Why use the completely pagan anti-God people to discipline the people who are the people of God, but are not acting like it and are rebellious right now? And it, it man, I mean, is that a good question? Uh, Habakkuk chapter two, verse one, when he goes to his watchtower to wait for God's response, Habakkuk has kind of just finished his his best speech. He's thinking, oh man, I gave God advice. Look what I have said to him. Like, man, I can't wait to see what he's going to say in response. It's like when you're talking to someone and you just have a mic drop moment. You're like, yep, there's no way you can reply to this in a better way, but I can't wait to see how you're going to respond. That's how Habakkuk probably sees himself here. And I don't want to take it out that Habakkuk is saying something and not being reverential towards God. But the point is, this is a hard pill to swallow. Like, God, our complaint at the beginning of Habakkuk is that, God, I don't think you're governing the world very well. Um, and I have a complaint about that. And then God responds and tells you a little bit more insight into what he's doing. And then you're like, well, I had a complaint to begin with. Now my complaint's even bigger. Like, that's your plan? God, Like I just don't get it. And man, like... Sometimes if, if we knew what was in the works, what God was sovereignly doing in through the world, uh, I, I think maybe it's best that we don't always know because we would probably have even more objections. Maybe, maybe not. I mean, who's to say? Like, But this is a real complaint of Habakkuk. And I think this matches how sometimes we feel. Sometimes we 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 perceive what's going on or we get some sort of insight into what's going on and we're just like, I... I don't get it. This doesn't match. You're a God of justice. You're a God of goodness. And this doesn't look like that. That's Habakkuk's attitude at this point. Let's look at verses two through four of Habakkuk right here. In chapter two, of course, the Lord answered me. Write down this vision clearly, inscribe it on tablets, for so many can easily read it. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It testifies about the end and will not lie. Though it delays, wait for it, since it will certainly come and not be late. Look, his ego is inflated. He is without integrity, but the righteous one will live by his faith. And some translations might say the righteous one will live by his faithfulness. Faith, faithfulness, the cool thing in Hebrew or in Greek, so whether you're in Old Testament or New Testament, it's actually like same word concept for either one. So faith, faithfulness, it's really one idea. I mean, if you think about it, faith isn't just something that you have all in your head. It's not just something that you intellectually think about. It's, it's something that, yes, you maybe will, will, you will subscribe to with your beliefs in your head, and your heart, whatever, but it bleeds out into your actions. So faith and faithfulness are part of the same token. And so that's why translations of Habakkuk 2:4 will range on the righteous one will live by his faith or his faithfulness it's really the same idea whatever you believe in your behavior will come out of not always perfectly and consistently but that's the point of faith if you think of faith as oh my gosh like i just i believed the right things about god therefore i am saved like well not exactly. Uh, it's a relationship with God. It's, it's this active trust. It's this loyal trust. It's this believing commitment. And so faith, faithfulness. Yeah. A little side note there. But do you see what God is saying here in this, in chapter two, he, he's saying, make this clear Habakkuk. I, I need you to know this. Like, yes. And he goes on to talk about the woes that are going to come But uh, he needs to juxtapose something. There are the type of people who are inflated, who look to their own uh, ego and is without integrity. It's the people, kind of like the Babylonians, who trust in their own strength. Uh, The Babylonians, of course, would be trusting in their own military might. But hey, whatever you trust in that is not God, man, that is pride put in the wrong place. The only thing we should be prideful about, if you want to even call it that, is prideful about how great our God is and trusting in him. And so the righteous one, as opposed to all others, and at this point, man, it seems like there's only few who are actually like Habakkuk and living faithfully. The righteous one will live by his faith, his faithfulness. The, the, the righteous one will be the one who trusts me as we walk through and into a time in, of hardship, a time that maybe doesn't even make sense to us. A time that uh, we would perceive as like, this is all wrong. You know, one of my friends was once talking about it. Uh, He brought up a great point. He was talking about how when Israel was being led through the wilderness, the pillar of fire and the cloud, uh, that they had to just trust and walk with God wherever it led. And so there's a major difference here that I want to make sure we clarify. This is not blind faith. God is not asking us to trust him blindly. First off, Habakkuk has been given some pretty clear insight on what's going to happen. The Babylonians are going to be raised up. So, and then later on, it fleshes out in Habakkuk that they're going to go into captivity, basically. But then it also fleshes out that that's not the end of the story, that uh, Babylon will one day be dealt with. But this is all part of this grand plan, and... Um, If you look at verse 14 of chapter 2, which I won't spend too much time on right now, but let's quickly look at that. This helps serve the point. In verse 14, it says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord's glory as the water covers the sea. And that really gives an insight into what God's doing here. He's like, you know what? I know that originally you were upset about Israel and the wickedness of Israel, but my plan is so much bigger than that. I'm not just trying to restore this nation. I'm trying to restore the world. And so all these pieces of the that I'm moving that are things that are going on that may not even make sense right now, they're all moving towards a plan when uh, my glory, the Lord speaking here, of course, <laughs> my glory will cover the whole earth like the water covers the sea. That's what God's moving his plan towards. It's ultimately moving towards something really good and ultimately glorious, uh, our good and his glory. But Right now, it's times that kind of make the methods don't really make sense to us. We can't see it fully. And so God's not asking us to walk blindly. He's giving us insight into what he's doing, as far as at least the end game plan of it all, but it's not blind faith. It's actually really rational faith because we have to learn how to trust the character of God when the circumstances don't make sense and i'm sure we can look at the world and make that kind of complaint or we could look at our own lives and say this doesn't make sense and whatever's time or season we're thinking of hey we're in covid-19 right now I'm not trying to make it all about that heck no but uh, some people might look at these circumstances and say like god where are you and even if we, let's say we do or don't get spiritual insight onto all of that, the point is we get to lean into and trust as verse four says, the righteous one will live by his faith. We are clinging to the character of God even when the circumstances are something that we cannot piece together to make sense of. So it's not blind faith. Heck no. We have the whole Bible as the track record of God's faithfulness and he's given us the end of the story and told us how it's all going to play out, and we're not—we haven't even gotten to that part of human history, but we know that the story ends good. So, how do we make sense of this? Uh, of course, I want you to read Habakkuk the rest of it if you haven't, um, but I want to skip ahead to the end of chapter three. So, there's more dialogue between God and Habakkuk, but uh, it really—Habakkuk starts with this plight, and then it gets worse. The news gets worse. And ultimately, there's not too much resolve for Habakkuk. Sometimes we have these awesome crescendos where a prophet or a person in the Bible gets this like, yes, things are going to turn around for my good. Well, Habakkuk is led into the insight that ultimately it's going to turn around for God's glory and restoring the world. But the hope is kind of dim because that's not going to happen in Habakkuk's lifetime. And for his next generation, even, they're going to go into captivity So this is going to be a hard time for the rest of his life. To trust God means walking in circumstances that are not prosperous, that are not fun, not to sound petty, but are not what we would expect in walking with God. Habakkuk chapter three, verses 16 through 19. Let's read this, some thoughts here. Uh, But in context, this is after he is made well aware that the Babylonians not only are being raised up, but are going to come through and conquer they are going to take Israel into captivity. And that's the news he has to swallow and kind of bring forward to the people at some point. And so he says this in verses 16 through 19. I heard and I trembled within. My lips quivered at the sound. Rottenness entered my bones. Ah, gosh, feel that lament there. I trembled where I stood. Now I must quietly wait for the day of distress to come against the people invading us. Though the fig tree does not bud and there's no fruit on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though the flocks disappear from the pen and there are no herds in the stalls, highlight, circle, underline this next word. Yet, yet I will celebrate in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation the Lord, my Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like those of a deer and it enables me to walk on the mountain heights. I mean, after hearing such bitter news, he feels in his bones. He's, he's honest about how he feels about this. Like this isn't just something like, oh, things are gonna be terrible. Uh, I don't care. No, he feels that the lament, the realness, the severity, the weight of what is going on in his world. Like we can feel the weight of what goes on in our world. And then as he waits for this, trying to be the man who trusts in God, he realizes that this means that prosperity in his own life will just not exist. Though the fig tree does not bud, though the fruit of the vines and the crops fail, basically his very livelihood uh, in that day and age as a farmer, as someone in agriculture, that's your life, that's your food, that's your means of making money. But like I said, highlight circle underline the word yet. This conjunction, this word of transition, transition, I mean, blows my mind because even though he doesn't get some great news, there's something great that happens in Habakkuk's heart. He says, I'll celebrate in the Lord. I'll rejoice in the God of my salvation. And then he like compares his swagger to that like a deer uh, prancing on mountain heights. Like what the heck? And I, Guys, I wrestled with this text so much. I don't get it. I don't get how he's able to do this. How is someone who's hearing such bad news and knowing that's not going to get better in his lifetime, and even in the generation next to him, able to like have such, dare I say, resilient joy? I think the pattern in the Bible is that we think that we're on a quest for explanations, but the truth is we're really on a quest for encounters. We think that we want uh, rationale and logic explained to us as to the why, why things are happening the way they are, but I don't think that's what really satisfies us. I think what we really need, whether we consciously know it or not, is a true encounter or maybe encounters with God, whatever that looks like in the variety of ways that God does that in each person's life. Still true through his word and all that, not contradicting the Bible, anything like that. But the way that God interacts and uh, creates an encounter with us that changes us. Here we are most of the time praying for the circumstances to change. And yes, sure, sometimes the circumstances do take a turn. But what if when they, what if when they don't? And so you see, I think Habakkuk actually models what Habakkuk 2.4 says about the righteous one living by faith, which is such an important passage because it's even picked up in the New Testament by Paul, used in Romans, it's used in Galatians, it's even used in the book of Hebrews. And so uh, this idea of the righteous one being marked by living by faith um, and trust in God really inspires us that that doesn't mean that we have to fully understand the picture We can follow God in what we perceive as dark places because we are clinging to the character of God. Habakkuk is also proof that the circumstances of the world we're born into do not have to be the predictor of our spiritual condition. We we can experience this triumphant joy even when it doesn't make sense. And perhaps that's part of the reason why it becomes like such a testimony to those around us. Because, I mean, how much of a testimony is joy when all things are going well? Sure, that's cool and all. Um, I wish for that too. But how about the times when things are not going well? How about the times when uh, the circumstances like we've been drilling here do not make sense and you have this resilient joy in God? But it's real. It's not like a joy that is uh, impervious to things going on in the world. It says, but my joy triumphs over it. In fact, the very word used for it in verse 18, when it says, "Yet I will celebrate in the Lord, this is kind of like this triumphant joy. And if you think of triumph, triumph overcomes something. It triumphs over it. So this is triumphant joy. Although the circumstances are dim, triumphant joy prevails. So let's bring this to a sort of close here today. Uh, If I had to sum up the message of Habakkuk in kind of a cool way, I would say it this way. Habakkuk inspires us to learn to trust the story even when we don't like the chapter we are in. I want to say that again. Habakkuk inspires us to learn to trust the story even when we don't like the chapter we're in. And guys, most of us, or some of us, we don't like the time we live in. We wish we lived in a different time or in a different place or in a different season or a different circumstance. Uh, We don't always get to choose those things. There are some things we get in our grasp of control through our choices. Yes, our choices are real and let's use our choices wisely. But there are some things that are so much bigger than us, so much bigger than Habakkuk that those things that are beyond us, that God God is sovereignly controlling, that are not within the constraint of our choices, we don't always get to choose those but we do get to choose what we do with those times. And like Habakkuk, this doesn't mean he sits passively by and accepts the fate of everything. No, this is someone who says, you know what, it's going to be hard, but I'm going to be faithful. Especially because hope transcends needing to see deliverance in the here and now. As Christians, as believers in God, we know that hope, uh, in fact, life for us doesn't have to end here. Our hope doesn't have to end here. God is working on a plan that's so much more grand. It's not in the here and now, it's in the life eternal and what he's going to do in the grand restoration of it all. So let's be honest. If we had the pen in our own hands, we would write the story very differently. There'd be things we would change and things we would add. And one of the hardest things to accept is that we're not the authors of this thing we call life. Life is not a concoction of billions of autobiographies colliding into one another. There's only one author, God, and he's the main character, and no one rivals his central arc of the story. God is the author of history, but that does not mean we're puppets forced into act a certain way of predetermined fate. We're not disposable pawns in the hands of God. Rather, we are the object of his affection. The reason he is adamant about holding the pen that controls the meta-narrative of life is because he cares about us. In fact, I think there's so much wisdom in this quote from uh, a, a previous preacher named J.M.L. Monsambre, who once famously said this, and I quote, If God would concede me his omnipotence for 24 hours, you would see how many changes I would make in the world. But if he gave me his wisdom too, I would leave things as they are. Habakkuk's dialogue with Yahweh communicates one overarching message that the the life of God's people is a journey in learning to trust the story, which if you haven't noticed is one of the mantras of this podcast, to read the story, to trust the story, and to live the story. It's one of the reasons why I love the message of Habakkuk so much. And so uh, as we close today, wherever you are today, I want you to know that if Habakkuk could speak of abounding on mountaintops like a deer with such triumphant joy, gosh, just really meditate on verses uh, 18 and 19 of chapter 3. Reread those over and over and again, because the context of Habakkuk makes that passage so much more powerful. If God, if Habakkuk could have that kind of triumphant joy in such terrible times, we can too. After all, we know how the story ends even more than Habakkuk did. We know so much more. We know that God, as the good author, will not let evil and suffering win. Trust him. Trust the author. Trust the story. And we'll see you next time on Adventures in Theology.